Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel. We'll look at uh, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Um, If you needed a Bible, we have a couple on the back table, I know. And uh, so let me pray, and then we'll get into the passage. Father, we do need your help, as always, as we consider your word. We need your Spirit's help so that we would uh, be able to receive your word with faith and be changed by it into the likeness of your Son, and that is our hope, and we know it is your goal, so would you please send your Spirit now to help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So Jesus, um, making a whip, driving out the animals and the traders and uh, throwing down their uh, coins and overturning their, their tables where they were doing business, if Jesus acted this way among us today, we would have him restrained. We would have him restrained. We would consider him disturbed. We'd consider him mentally ill, probably. In fact, uh, there's an illustration that I have. I don't know if any of you were present, but at the the church I was at uh, for a few years before coming to Ascension, so this is over seven years ago at InTown Presbyterian, downtown Portland, uh, one time a member disapproved of what we were doing. It was a member of the church, disapproved of what we were doing, and he jumped up at the end of communion, and he threw the communion table and everything down off the stage. Were you there that day? Yeah. Um, He threw the table off the stage, and he was shouting at us what he imagined, at least, to be a, a prophetic judgment of the church. He was shouting that we were all hypocrites because he didn't like what we were doing. And a few of our guys physically escorted him out, and a man from our church who was a doctor uh, suspected that he was suffering from bipolar disorder and tried to help him. And he probably was suffering from bipolar disorder, but very similar kind of thing happening in the place of worship, right? Uh, That's what's going on here in this passage, isn't it? I mean, this is a little frightening. We've got sweet, nice, happy Jesus altered into raging lunatic Jesus, right? He needs some help. It's a pretty big mood swing. Um, No, he's he's the same Jesus. He's the same Jesus that we see throughout the Gospels in every story. And this, this Jesus is characterized by love. 
And this must be an act of love. What he is doing must be an act of love. In fact, he always acts in love because he is love. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's, he's the God who is love. It's, it's just that we don't recognize it as love. We just don't recognize it. It doesn't fit our definition. He would play a lot nicer if he was going to fit our definition of love. His love can be frightening to us. It can be really disturbing to us, especially when we do come to the awareness, as you will if you grow as a Christian, you come to the awareness that his love is deeply antithetical to our version of love. It's deeply antithetical to our understanding of love. His, he, isn't, um, he isn't temporarily suspending his love here in this scene where he's driving out the, the money changers with a whip. He's not suspending his love in order to judge. His judgment is an exercise of his love. His judgment is an exercise of his love, and it's ultimately intended to be gracious even to the people who are being driven out here. Even to those who are being judged, his judgment is intended to be a gracious exercise of his love. So let me explain that. What's happening here? Um, The temple was what? What was the temple? It was a really big, magnificent edifice, uh, the building, the place in Jerusalem where God met with his people. It was a place for love. That's what that boils down to. It was a place for divine love, for communion with God. The temple was a place for God to meet with his people. And the Passover of the Jews, which is the context here, it starts off um, our passage. The Passover of the Jews was one of the main festivals where people would make pilgrimage from all over Israel and uh, even other parts of the world. But... um, People would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They would come up to Jerusalem to bring their sacrificial offerings to the temple. And God's law actually makes provision for travelers because there were a lot of travelers who needed to come from a long distance and they can't carry oxen and sheep with them on their pilgrimage at one of these annual feasts. And so God's law makes makes provision for them to be able to just bring money with them, and then purchase the sacrificial animals that they would use for temple worship when they arrive in the city. But the temple itself was no, no place for such transactions. The, the temple was being misused. The temple was being abused as it became a place for their business here. The temple was for worship. The temple was for meeting with God, for communion. And, uh, and God wants to be with his people, and he wants to be with all kinds of people. It says in one of the parallel passages in the, uh, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, <clears throat> that, uh, that this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Everybody's supposed to be welcome. It's not just for the Jews. The temple was always intended to be a place where, where people from all nations could come and meet with God for communion and, and, um, and find his grace. And when the merchants when the Jewish merchants set up their business in the court of the Gentiles, which was that outer part of the temple where uh, the nations, they were welcome to come this far but no further. Um, they, couldn't, they couldn't proceed into the temple proper. They could stay out in the court of the Gentiles, and the merchants set up their business there. It effectively crowded them out from worship. It's basically like saying, God, we know <clears throat> that you want this house to be a place where you meet with your people from every nation, but we're kind of setting it up to crowd them out. We don't want them here. 
we're not making this place conducive to their worship. And, um, and it amounted to, to, to the Jews keeping the Gentiles distant from God himself. This is a God who is love. This is a God who wants to be with his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And the Jews weren't letting that happen. And so that's a problem with God. That's going to be a problem. Because God is love. Because he's love. That's a problem. The Jews thought that they were doing all the right things. See, it says right here in our scriptures, offer these sacrifices and make these animals available for travelers to be able to sacrifice in temple worship. That's how they justified it. That's how they excused themselves. They had turned religion into a checklist for self-justification. And they used the temple as a place where they could do all the right things. We're going to do everything by the book here and expect that that entitled them to God's favor. We'll do all, all the right things and God will be nice to us. Give us a place of privilege and honor. We do all the right things, he'll give us what we want. He'll be nice and he'll give us what we want. Isn't that kind of what religion is? If we do all the right things, God will be nice. He'll play by our definition of what nice is, and he'll give us the things that we want. That is not meeting with the true God for communion. That is not meeting with the true and living God for communion. That's a transaction. That's using God. That's looking to manipulate him to serve our will, and it has no regard for others to come and know God's grace and love. And Jesus was zealous for God's grace and love and for the people to have communion with him. Jesus was zealous for his father's house. He was passionate about the temple. He was passionate about God's vision for what this place was supposed to be, a place for meeting, for God to meet his people. So Frederick Bruner is a commentator on this passage. He has a quote that I put in the front of the bulletin. He says, The insensitivity that makes a place of worship a place of commerce appalls the simplest conscience. Imagine then Jesus' conscience. We should not be surprised that this business hurt Jesus at deep levels. There's a little theology of God here. God deserves respect. Jesus comes to restore the honor of God. Hallowed be thy name. This is the one truth that most concerns Jesus. So Jesus is concerned that God's will would be respected. That God's will for the temple would be respected. He's concerned that God himself would be honored for who he really is. He's the God of love who wants to meet with his people. That's what Jesus is concerned about. He's a God of love and communion, and that's what his temple, his house, should be. It's a place for meeting him. So, for love's sake, Jesus brings their distortion of religion to a violent end. For love's sake, he brings it to a violent end. Leslie Newbegin said this, The action of Jesus is more than an example of prophetic protest against corrupt religion. It is a sign of the end of religion. The end of all religion. He's purifying the temple. That's what he's doing. He's restoring the temple to what it was meant to be. 
and he's, he's doing it through the destruction of the old abuses of religion. And in the process, as it says in Psalm 69 that his disciples uh, remembered later, in the process because of his zeal for his father's house, because of his love, he's consumed. He's consumed. That doesn't just mean that he's eaten up from the inside. He's consumed. His love and his passion for his father and for the, the honor of God as the God of love leads him to his crucifixion. His passion tears him to pieces physically. As it uh, says in Malachi 3, which Freddie read from our uh, Old Testament reading, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So this is, in John's mind, uh, John the Gospel writer, this is, this is why this is closely connected with John the Baptist here at the beginning of the Gospel, because that's John the Baptist, the messenger who will prepare the way before me. God said at the, at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi 3, I'm sending John the Baptist. He's going to tell you what I'm like. He's going to point the way to Jesus Christ. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, and this is, I think is being a little bit facetious, the God that you think you want to meet, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi, the old priestly class, and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So it's in his unbearable refinement of religion. His unendurable refinement of religion that he made the sons of Levi, the priests, the people who were in charge of the temple, he made them finally to make the righteous offering. Through his purification, he compelled them to make the righteous offering. His presence was intolerable. They could not stand it, so they killed him and they offered him up. He's the true sacrifice. Jesus was the true temple. He's, he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Right? That's, his, that's his name. That's who he is. He's God with us. He's God dwelling with humanity in his person. He, ultimately, not some place on the top of a hill, not some building made of stones, no matter how big they are, and how long they last. He is the meeting place of heaven and earth, and communion with God is found in him. And they tore him down. They tore him down. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said it's taken 46 years to, be, to build this temple. So that they actually weren't finished with the temple at that point, it just was like 46 years before that is when the temple construction project began. And, um, and they're saying, it's taken a long time to build this thing, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Right. <clears throat> but he was speaking about the temple of his body. They didn't understand that. And in fact, it says uh, that his disciples really only understood that after he was raised from the dead. They were confronted 
the Jews were confronted with the love of God in the purpose of the temple. They were confronted with his love in what this place was supposed to be. And they abused the temple, the structure, the building. They abused it until it was unrecognizable. And then they were confronted with the love of God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. They were confronted with the true temple and it was unbearable. So they had him arrested and beaten and crucified until he was unrecognizable. And their, their rejection of the love of God was complete. They did everything they could do to reject him. But the love of God was just getting started. Their rejection of the love of God was complete, but his love was just getting started. They had killed him. They tore down the temple of his body, but it just made the way for God to be able to accept us for real fellowship, for real communion through Jesus' perfect offering. It just paved the way for him to raise the everlasting temple. Their destruction of Jesus Christ on the cross, the true temple of God, it just paved the way for him to be able to raise the true and everlasting temple. And now, in the risen Jesus, we have access to God, always and forever, and nothing will ever change that. Through Jesus Christ, we have access to God. We have God with us, perpetually, eternally, even though it was the last thing any of us wanted, even though we're the kind of people who resist and reject his love. We raised the temple to the ground. That, that word raised is like the action of a razor, right? Um, we raised the temple to the ground, and he raised it up again. He erected the new temple in his, in his resurrection, and that temple will never be destroyed. It cannot be destroyed. The temple of the risen Lord will always serve its purpose. Jesus is unfailingly the mediator between God and humanity. We meet God in him. That will always be true. We're doing it right now as we're gathered in the name of Christ, especially as we come together with God in Christ at the table through his body, having our participation in his body. And this is how his love comes to you. It's in the destruction and raising of the temple of Jesus' body. His love executes judgment. It's his love behind it. But his love executes judgment upon his son instead of you so that you might live with him, so you might live in him by faith. Maybe you failed to recognize his love for its strange shape because it wasn't what you expected. It's a little bit frightening. It's a little bit disturbing. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But that is the shape of his love. The, sh the shape of his love is in the shape of the cross. And it is far better than what you expected. It's far better than any of us would have expected or imagined. And this is comforting because you can be assured then, I mean, if this is what God's love looks like, then nothing can separate you from it. Nothing can ever separate, separate you from his love. Neither death nor life, 
nor even God's angry, righteous judgment cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Believe that, and you'll have peace in this world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that um, the revelation, the communication of your love to us in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, would have its intended effect upon us, that you would win over our hearts and minds to you, that you would draw us into relationship with you. This is something that you want, and it blows our minds that you would want fellowship with people like us. Nevertheless, you have done everything necessary to make this a reality through the life and through the death, the judgment of your own son on our behalf, and through your raising him from the dead as the new and everlasting temple, the place, so to speak, the place where we meet with you for your life-giving presence with us. We pray that you would make us um, more aware of your love, more cognizant of the shape of it, able to see it better throughout the history of the gospel and even in our lives. We pray that you would teach us the, um, the shape and the size, the height and the width and depth and breadth of your love, which is given to us in Christ Jesus. It is not instinctive for us to recognize it, so we pray for your Spirit's help in a way that would truly change us, so that we would know ourselves to be loved by you always and forever even into eternity. We pray for this so that uh, we would be the kind of people who have hope and peace in this world so that um, we could share your love with our friends and loved ones who do not yet know you and thereby bring them the peace of Christ as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.